folks, do you feel like everything these days is go, go, go? It's nonstop from work to friends to family and a million pressing issues. Sometimes you just need to take a playoff and hit the reset button. That's when you reach for a Coors Light. It's made to chill. Hey, it's that time of year in Minnesota again to get out on the lake, go to the cabin, sit back, watch the baseball. Coors Light is the perfect refreshment to chill during these summer months. There's only one beer out there that's made to chill. The mountains on the bottles and cans turn blue when your beer is cold, and that way you know it's time to chill. Hit that reset button with some mountain cold refreshment. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's literally made to chill. It's crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. Coors Light is the one you should choose when you need to unwind. When you want to hit the reset button, reach for the beer that is made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado, and as always, celebrate. everybody welcome into another episode of purple insider matthew collar with you and i want to remind you to go to purpleinsider.com that's where you can subscribe to all of my written work covering the minnesota vikings and if you could rate and review this podcast that would be a major major help it allows other vikings fans to find this podcast when they go searching and type in vikings in whatever podcast app they're using if you rate and review this will be the first one that comes up so it is Greatly appreciated. All right, now we welcome into Purple Insider Eric Edholm from Yahoo Sports. What is going on, Eric? How are you? Uh, other than being the last guy on earth to get his hair cut in places where haircuts are allowed, I'm, I'm doing all right. We, uh, the son and I, are going to go for uh, some boy trims pretty soon here, so we'll uh, we'll take care of that. But right now, just. Uh, you know, taking in what's been a crazy couple of months here in the world and uh, trying to distract people with some good football stuff every now and then. Yeah, that's the best we can do. My wife did my haircut. She did pretty well. She's going to have to give another go at it, so I'm wearing a hat as we record this. <laughs> um, but you, you, you mentioned the strange circumstances of the world, and you wrote an in-depth piece talking about what broadcasts might look like if there are very few or no fans in the stands. So I want to talk about some different ideas there and then what it also might be like for players if there are no fans in the stands and maybe the home field advantage is different. So yeah. you talked to a bunch of uh, network executives and the saddest that I was reading your article is that the Chris Collinsworth slide in just might not be able to happen. I don't know what we'll do, but I also came away from your piece feeling like there are a lot of potential ideas here that networks could actually take their coverage another step, even when fans do come back. Yeah. I talked to Stephanie Drooley who oversees a lot of the, uh, you know, the production there at, a at uh, ESPN and, Fred Gadelli from NBC, longtime executive there. And, you know, both had really interesting sort of, you know, granted, of course, they're going to try to make it as positive as possible. They're not going to say this is going to be terrible for us. It, it does force them into a position where they have to think about every aspect of it. How many people are we sending to games? You know, can we have people in a truck if they're not, you know, you know, with social distancing, if that's still going to be a thing come September? You know, all the little stuff, catering and staffing and everything. But then obviously the on-TV product is most important for them. And it really – I did walk away from those conversations feeling like, you know, the same sort of ideas that we saw in the NFL draft with the, the changes they made, the innovations they were forced to come up with. If we're in a situation where fans are limited or there are no fans in the stands come September, October, et cetera, these networks, I think, are going to adopt some new ideas, some innovations, the best ways they can to, you know, artificially enhance the product without feeling artificial, if that makes sense. 
No, it does. And uh, they also talked about the XFL, and it was fascinating to see all the different things that the XFL tried from bringing you play calls, which I was not actually a huge fan of. I mean, unless you understand some of the verbiage there. Right. Like, okay, X right, left, this, uh, great, fantastic. I'm sure they called the run. Like, uh, But, you know, at least they tried it, and they gave you something that you had never heard before, that communication with coaches, communication on the sideline that was going on between players and coaches, sometimes got heated and then mm-hmm. players reactions instantly after things happened which ultimately resulted in having to use the bleep button or a few swears getting through on the tv but aside from that uh, they kind of laid out a little bit of a blueprint of some of the things that broadcast could borrow with giving us more access to what's going on actually on the field and on the sidelines yeah and i think you're right you know stephanie Drulli from espn mentioned about how you know, she's said it a number of times now, the XFL ended up being a huge benefit for them in terms of preparing for what the NFL might look like. Now, the XFL games, I think the, the least attended game had somewhere around 10,000 fans, and I think the most attended was somewhere, you know, north of 20,000. But there were some stadiums that clearly looked fairly empty and only had a, a minimal amount of fans. And I think, you know, they wanted to sort of go back and look at those broadcasts and find out what worked, what didn't, all the the in-game interviews you mentioned, but also just sort of the sound of the game. And when I talked to Fred Goodelli from NBC, as he mentioned, he said, you know, when there's 5,000 fans in a stand or 10,000, it may not sound a lot because we're used to those bigger numbers, but he said, you can still get the fan feel, the audio that comes with that, the sound of cheers. It's not as loud. It's not as prominent, but it's there. But you could also still adopt some of these other ideas. So I, I, I hope they're full stadiums. But I also hope we get to see what some of these innovations might be, whether it's camera angles that couldn't have existed before because fans will be, you know, have their view interrupted because of it, whether it's miking up more players. Deshaun Jackson was talking about that. Miking up referees, et cetera. Some of the live things that we're never privy to while the game is happening and and usually comes far later when we get those, you know, sound effects type things. And it also seems like the more we go along, the more we learn about coronavirus and things that are outside, it seems that it does not spread the same way it does if they're inside. Correct. So there might be opportunities to bring some of the sound from outside of the stadium if there are fans who are watching on a big board or something like that. I mean, you look at the fan parties that end up happening during the NBA playoffs or the NHL Stanley Cup playoffs where they've got all these thousands of fans outside. Well, you wouldn't want them that close, but if you treat Treated it like the beach, and you were all a certain distance away from each other. They, they can have a, a good crowd outside a lot of these stadiums and bring some of that noise in as well. I'm curious what you think of pumping in fake crowd noise because I'm against it. I just think that it's not giving us what's really going on, and that's kind of the goal of broadcasting. That even if it's weird, and you mentioned in your article the game with the Baltimore Orioles where there were yeah. no fans, and boy was it weird, and having done single-A baseball broadcasting before. Uh, I've done some games with no fans in the stands. Doubleheader <laughs> on a Sunday. That's second game, fifth inning on. There's nobody left, and the players can hear you calling the game. So it's a little bit strange. But if the goal of TV is to try and put you there in the stadium for what it's really like, I, I mean, it's not fake pumped-in noise for the players, so why should it be for what we see at home? Yeah, I mean, it's probably going to be weird either way. I was talking to Kyle Long, who just recently retired from the Bears, and he had a great quote. I mean, he said, I'm watching the Korean Baseball League. It's baseball. It's great. Love baseball. Is it a little weird to have it be so naked, you know, empty without that sound? Absolutely. It's a little weird. So, you know, it, it's there's going to be sort of a disorientation one way or the other. And, you know, some of the – like the Bundesliga soccer league, you know, had – they, they experimented a little bit. They tried games with the cardboard cutouts, right? They had the games with no sound, just the ambient, whatever it was, was playing in the stadium, the, the sounds of the athletes, and then also with the sort of fake crowd noise. Now, soccer's different because there are chants and songs and sort of a rhythm and a cadence that goes with it. Every sport is unique to its own thing. One of the fascinating parts, I didn't get too into it because I, I don't think it's that far along or it, it's on the front burner, but you know, kind of playing along the idea you mentioned about the fan gatherings outside the stadium. They're also looking into the idea, app makers are are kind of knee deep in this right now, of having this instant fan reaction app of sorts where, you know, you and I are watching the game and we're, oh, touchdown, you know, yelling into our phone. 
and somehow that is now channeled into the stadium. Is it going to be instantaneous? Is it going to sound weird? Is there going to have to be a, a dump button for that? I don't know. But, you know, I think they're both executives from NBC and ESPN I mentioned were at least open to the idea of the pumped-in fake crowd noise. Did I get the sense that both of them were excited to do it? Probably not. I think they want to find maybe more real artificial versions like what you're talking about. And I think what makes the audio of uh, games sound the way it does is not necessarily the big plays. Because, you know, a guy when you're there, a guy catches the ball, he breaks into the open, and it goes nuts inside yeah. the stadium when you're there. When you're watching on TV, you don't necessarily notice that so much, as you notice the general ambiance. And if they were to have something like that that were more of a bed underneath general ambiance, I guess I would be like, okay, that's no big deal. But then when someone does score a touchdown, I mean, is there going to be a guy in the truck that pushes the touchdown button? <laughs> Yay! Like, I don't know. It just all seems, it all seems super weird. But one thing I thought of, and I wrote about this at Purple Insider, is the home field advantages and how those could change. Now, my first instinct is if everybody's playing in front of 5,000 or 10,000 fans, then of course, um, you know, maybe it evens out. But the Minnesota Vikings have one of the biggest advantages in the entire NFL. At home, at U.S. Bank Stadium, the Vikings defense has more interceptions than touchdowns allowed. That is certainly not the case on the road for the Vikings defense over the past few years. Uh, who do you think would be most affected, or do you think that these guys would just be professionals and go play, or if it would have certain uh, differing impacts depending on where you go? Yeah, it's a great question, and there's probably a million different answers going to depend on the person. I talked to former players like uh, you know, like uh, Kyle Long and like Jeff Schwartz, who, who's now an analyst, played in the league as an offensive lineman. Jeff's opinion was that it's not that big a deal. We're professionals. We you know we we practice the same as we play. Blah blah blah. You know, but but Kyle was sort of saying, look, you know, if I'm going to Seattle, I'm not worried about Michael Bennett. This I'm paraphrasing what he said. He said I'm worried about Michael Bennett. And the noise. And he really thinks defensive linemen especially are going to sort of, you know, they, the guys who thrive on the chaos a little bit, they're the ones who might be muted a little bit and, and have their effect on the game sort of minimized somewhat. So, yeah, I mean, I think, you, you know, you start with the three that everybody mentioned, Seattle, Kansas City, New Orleans. I would think there's another tier right there with, with Minnesota and, you know, Buffalo and some other even outdoor stadiums that get really loud and, you know, you could probably take a player poll and find out what the other loud stadiums are. But I would guess those teams have to be at a, a slight disadvantage. And, you know, the Vegas odds makers are going to have some say on this, too, which is another fascinating angle. I mean, there's just so many things to think about with this. Yeah, uh, it's funny because when I look through the numbers, uh, of recently anyway, and it's hard to pick out the right sample size because when Seattle's at their most dangerous as a defense and most talented as a defense, it would probably be enhanced by having yeah. that. Recently, their home field advantage has not been as much, and the same goes for New Orleans, and yet in recent years, Houston has actually been really, really good at home and you know, in terms of point differential, and I wouldn't have expected yeah. the Houston Texans to be one of the top teams, but but they are for a difference yeah. between how they perform at home and how they performed away. But figuring out is really tough. Now I talked to the author of Scorecasting. If anyone has ever read this book, if you haven't, you should because it's fascinating. Right. It dives into a lot of different elements of sports and statistics and kind of how we view things with perceptions versus reality. The biggest thing they came away with is home field advantage is impacted by referees more than players. So they looked at basketball and guys shot the same free throw percentage, whether it was insane and people were waving crazy signs or not, uh, or if they were at home and it was completely quiet. But when it came to getting those big calls at big times, especially on your own sideline, they found there was a, a big difference. So that's what I'll be really interested too is how the refereeing might be different if there's no fans there. And the first thing, of course, I think about is the fail Mary play, you know, the one with the replacement refs in Seattle. I mean, you know, a play that we'll be talking about for years. Obviously, it led to the referees coming back. They'd see, and we'd seen enough at that point, but, you know, you had one ref signal touchdown, one ref signal incomplete. You know, you almost have to ask yourself, what was the impact? Was this a home call, so to speak? So I think that cannot be overlooked. And obviously you have to look at the individual referee units and everything. But, yeah, I mean, when, when, when referees get booed the way they can after a bad call, you almost feel like that makeup call is coming at some point. Uh, and to your point, right, I mean, we, we – 
you know, if you want to have the touchdown button on the, the artificial sound, what about the bad call button, right? Because that's the sound sometimes that's the most compelling is when a referee makes a call, the home crowd doesn't like it, and people are going, are just up in arms. So, you know, absolutely there's an effect that that has to be uh, considered with the, with the officials. And, you know, circling back to what you said about the XFL, it was great to actually hear them talk to the person in the booth and get yeah. that insight to what that's really like. I, I think that NFL fans would like that a lot to actually know what's being said and have them explain the calls better because you very rarely get any type of real explanation when something happens. They come out, they say, sorry, I didn't see what you saw and moving on with the game and that's it. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask you about a couple other things here that just have sort of popped into my mind. Uh, one of them being the idea that players could go back soon to a mini training camp. I know that your teammate Charles Robinson has reported on this a little bit. Is it a good idea, do you think, to get players back into some sort of mini camp before they start training camp? And do you see this kind of playing out on time ultimately? Yeah, obviously I think there, there's got to be some sort of, uh, you know, meeting of the minds here between the union and the, and the, uh, the teams as well and figuring out what's best, what's worse. You know, you see a lot of the colleges where they've kind of moved up their schedule a little bit, understanding that conditions have gotten better, that there may be a second environmentally uh, charged wave of this, this virus that could come during flu season, November, December, and, and so on. So, uh, you know, I, I would think that I think ideally the sooner they get in the better, but I think there's also an option of just simply reporting for training camp perhaps a week earlier or something like that and continuing these virtual meetings that are happening. So I don't know the answer. I actually truthfully haven't read Charles' most recent story, which went up about an hour, I think, before you and I hopped on here. So, you know, I I can't speak for Charles or what he's reported, but I do know those are the conversations that are being had right now. Is it safe? You know, we're hearing about some of these schools with the players reporting, and there's a handful of them who have tested positive. Are the tests accurate? I mean, not to get too anecdotal, but my wife works in, in healthcare, and she didn't test positive, and I'm pretty damn sure she had COVID, you know. And so it's like there's an accuracy issue with some of these tests, and are you going to isolate people for two weeks? There's just a host of questions that come with it that I don't frankly have the answer to, and I think a lot of people are – you know, you're, you're kind of doing it by trial at this point. And luckily for the NFL, they get to kind of watch everybody else yeah. do it before they have to, as the NBA is getting ready for this and they're going to play at Disneyland. And ultimately I think we'll see the NHL and major league baseball. I'm less confident because Ugh. they can never figure it out between players and owners. Uh, in That's a tough one. Yeah. I don't, I don't see that happening. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, but I hope they do. Yeah, I know. Just figure it out, guys. Figure out how to split up the cash. And maybe Major League <laughs> Baseball owners tell people how much cash you actually have. Um, cause that would go a long way, I think. Telling yeah. the whole story there. That might change the narrative in the public a slight bit, yes. Yeah, I think it would. So let me ask you, which uh, players would be affected the most, though, by having no real offseason? Because some players will tell you, look, as long as we have training camp, it's going to be okay. These Zoom meetings, we're learning enough from them. We can get out there. If you're a veteran player especially, I've always thought veteran players could mostly skip everything but the last two weeks of camp and come back in and be fine. Yeah. But if you are Justin Jefferson, Ezra Cleveland, uh, Cameron Dantzler, Jeff Gladney, like these guys all have a chance to play significant roles for the Minnesota Vikings this year, and now they're going to be put quite a ways behind having to try to do it virtually as opposed to getting hands-on coaching. And you think, I mean, just the fact that the Vikings have 15 draft picks. Now, not all of them are going to make the roster, but – you know, there could be undrafted guys who make it as well and, and are factoring in that. We could be talking about 35 40% of their roster having not played in an NFL setting before this year, which is, you know, it's fascinating for a team that's that's probably going to be in contention and very good. So, you know, you'd put them on the list as a, as a team that to watch. Are they going to be able to, you know, gel the way they need to? They're already losing a top receiver. Obviously, Tom uh, – I almost said Tompa Bray uh, – Tom Brady don't do, and yeah, don't do I know. It. We have banned that from the show. Thank goodness you can you can dump button me on that one. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean you know new head coach for the first time in the NFL. Byron Leftwich OC, new receivers, the whole thing. It's going to be different for him, even if he is Tom Brady, even if he has seen every look he's ever seen before. So 
you know, I, I would think the teams that bring back their head coach, their offensive coordinator, and their quarterback are going to be at an advantage and the ones that aren't counting on as many rookies to jump right in. But then again, I thought that back in 2011 when we had the, uh, the you know, the, the lockout year, you know, all Cam Newton did was throw for 400 yards in his first game and have an unbelievable rookie year. We had Andy Dalton throw for a billion yards too. I mean, it could be that the defenses are affected in a way that we're, you know, that happened last time. It's it's very fascinating to think about. Well, and that's the Vikings' biggest disadvantage here. So if they don't have home field advantage in U.S. Bank Stadium, they've had half their defense leave and now is being replaced by some guys who have been in the system before. Yeah. You and I, before we started recording, we're chatting about Armin Watts, somebody yeah. who was there last year. But Gladney is very likely going to have to start considering their situation there. And someone like Afadi Adenabo, who's never taken on that many snaps before he's going to have to step into a key position I'm wondering before I let you go Eric if there is a Vikings draft pick that is not you know the obvious Jeff Gladney or Justin Jefferson who you think is kind of intriguing for winning any any type of spot um, that is down the board a little bit because you mentioned there are 15 so there's lots of names to pick from sure Um, if there was anybody around draft time that they got where you went hey, you know what, keep an eye on that guy because he might emerge. And in the Zimmer era, we've seen lots of players go from late-round draft picks or undrafted and then become very big-time players uh, in his system. Yeah, I mean, as I sort of think through who they got and stuff, I mean, look, I I thought Kenny Willekes was worth going higher than a, than a seventh-round pick. You know, I think James Lynch higher than a fourth-round pick. I love their draft. I really couldn't quibble with too many of their picks just – you know, pound for pound, I thought they did a fantastic job with all those selections. You know, Troy Dye was a really good player and tough. You know, there was some, you know, he didn't interview as well as some teams would have liked to see. You know, I had Cameron Dantzler as a top 50 player. Where did they get him in the third round? So, third round, yep. Yeah, I mean, really a lot of those guys to choose from. I hate to give you a, you know, the they're all pretty good. Even Neville Clark, I thought, was, was a draftable prospect. I think they signed him, if I'm not mistaken. So, Boy, it's hard to choose just one. I mean, to me, Lynch has a, a little bit of a position and a role change that he's going to have to have. He's more of sort of a, an end. I know they could obviously use him as a, as a like a five technique or something like that. But given the fact that there was some turnover up front, uh, you know, I, I could see him working his way into a role. Maybe not week one, you know, three sacks or anything like that. But I just thought he was a darn good football player who was – you know, is he the most athletic? Is he the most explosive? No, but, you know, he, he's so tenacious out there, and Willikus would be, a, you know, sort of a smaller version of him in some ways. You know, one of those guys I would be kind of shocked if they didn't produce on some level. I wasn't as high on DJ Wanham as some other people were. I mean, they saw the potential, and I understand where he comes from, but I really think those other two guys in, in some sort of limited role could end up being, you know, pretty good contributors this year. Well, the thing that um, – PFF study found was that it usually is production in college that translates over. So even if the guy wasn't a top draft pick, the Daniil Hunter is a real outlier situation. And Daniil Hunter is one of, I think, the greatest athletes to ever step on a football field in the entire history of the league. So it's hard to say, oh, well, we got a guy who, you know, ran a similar 40 or he's got a little less wingspan, but still kind of long. Like, I mean, Hunter is built in a lab. So this is completely different from trying to find that guy. I would trust Andre Patterson's eye more than mine when it came to scouting someone like DJ Wanham, but I agree with you that if you're going to draft a guy in the fourth, a guy in the seventh, get guys who produce big time like Lynch and Willikies did. And I just want you to tell me what you like so much about Dantzler, because I look at the 40 and I go, well, there's not too many corners that slow, but I also think did he just not know how to run a 40? Because when I watch him play, I do not see a guy that runs a 4-6-40. Yeah, no, I was I was a little surprised, obviously, at the time, first of all. I mean, that really, you know, it really hurt him. I think had he had a chance to have a full set of scouts see him run a, a 40, I know there was a video of, of one of his 40s that was that was put up there, and everybody said, ah, see, he's a 4-3-9 guy. Well, maybe the truth lies somewhere in between, but I loved his aggressiveness. You know, he always had an eye on trying to make a play on the ball, sort of this lean, high-cut, you know, guy who – you know, has a little bit of a different body style than you typically see in, in like the higher round uh, corners, even though the length is obviously very attractive. But uh, I really like the fact that he had a my ball mentality. 
and he went up against some of the best receivers in the country in the SEC, typically held his own, you know, never backed down from a challenge. That's what I loved about him, too. He had that, you know, he'd go up against a, a Jamar Chase type of player and just say, like, I'm better than you are. Whether that was true or not, I don't know, but I think he – you know, has enough sort of press man ability and enough confidence uh, to to make up for what would, you know, scouts would say is less than, you know, elite level athleticism. And I think he lands with the perfect coach to yeah, help him. Exactly. I mean, a guy who's coached lots of tall and lanky cornerbacks. And then, you know, Zimmer just has this capability of taking guys and molding them into what he wants them to be. So Eric Edholm, Yahoo Sports, make sure you go – Check out his great piece breaking down uh, and talking with a lot of NFL executives. Uh, I'm sorry, broadcast executives. Yes. Pumped in crowd noise, mic'd up players, darkened seats. How will the NFL broadcast could change without fans? So that is a long headline, Eric. And uh, <laughs> I appreciate um, you coming on, taking the time. And I hope people uh, take the time to read your article as well. Thanks, man. Just be happy I didn't uh, stick uh, Collinsworth slide into the headline. That's right. <laughs> Got to tell you about a new sponsor for the show. It is Soda Stick. Go to SodaStick.com to get all your original Minnesota sports-inspired goods. If you haven't seen this stuff yet, you got to check it out. One of my favorite designs is the Minnesota Moon, a tribute to the infamous Disgusting Axe at Lambeau Field. All their apparel is screen printed here in Minneapolis on super soft, super comfy shirts and hoodies. You will love it. We're going to hook you up with free shipping on your next order. Use the promo code PURPLEINSIDER for free shipping. That is S-O-T-A-S-T-I-C-K.com. Soda Stick, the original Minnesota sports-inspired goods. Code PURPLEINSIDER for free shipping. All right. If you were a listener back during my Score North days, you know this guy very well. And if you weren't, then you deserve this introduction to better known as the offensive line guy, the host of the Trench Warfare podcast, Brandon Thorne. What is going on, Brandon? How are you? Happy to, to be on this new show that you have and just kind of continue what we had going before. This is, this is awesome. Well, yeah, and thank you for taking the time to come on. And people who haven't heard you before know that you are about the most thorough analyst when it comes to the offensive line, and they should follow your work on Twitter and video breakdowns and things like that because there are very few people who put as much work into studying offensive and defensive line play as you. And guess what, Brandon? As you know so well, the Vikings offensive line has uncertainty. Shocker. I can't believe it. Like, uh, this feels like uh, deja vu here of Every season since you and I have been doing shows together of breaking down who's going to be the starting five going into a season. But you know what, Brandon, this year they actually have a chance to take a step forward. But I think that will depend on what combination they put out there, how it fits with the skill sets and how well Ezra Cleveland can adapt quickly in a very strange offseason if he gets a chance to play. So let's start with Ezra Cleveland, second-round draft pick that some people had as high as a first-rounder. He ends up dropping to the Vikings. I don't know whether it's a good idea to try and start Ezra Cleveland right away, considering he's coming from Boise State. But one thing that I do know, Brandon, is when you have guys with really exceptional athleticism like his, it always gives them a shot to go into training camp and win a job. Yeah, uh, he's he's a guy like you said. That's you know when I when I watched him just this weekend uh, a little bit, just taking a look at him, uh, just kind of seeing you know how he moves and some of the blocks he was executing and stuff like that. And you could definitely see it on tape as well, just how he's moving out there. He's definitely a, a twitchy looking athlete, you know, really good quickness. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a good, uh, you know, one of, one of the, one of the good kind of traits to, to have, you know, as an offensive lineman. Um, it looked like he was doing some pretty good things with his hands to in the run game and pass game, you know, just, just speaking kind of generally on that and just kind of the prototype of what, it seems like the Vikings like a tackle. He definitely fits that mold and he'll be a nice guy to get in the system and start developing right away. Cause I think that there's probably a, a chance that he's going to play, uh, this season. I mean, Riley Reef is definitely getting older and, um, you know, his, he's been pretty durable. Uh, you know, Reef has over his career, uh, very durable really. Um, but he's definitely played bang banged up quite a bit uh and you could kind of see his play 
the consistency of his play vary because of that, I think is, is at least part of it. Um, so, you know, if, if, as long as Reef doesn't, you know, fall off a cliff or anything like that in terms of his level of play, I, it's kind of hard to envision Cleveland, you know, getting on the field uh, as a rookie, but I think that's also kind of predicated on how Pat Elfline plays at left guard. Uh, you know, if he doesn't improve his play and regain, you know, some of what he looked like in years past, then you could be looking at a possibility of Reef going there and then Cleveland going to tackle. But, um, you know, I think that's an outside shot, you know, but that's at least something that, Cross my mind that I think is possible. And, um, so that's interesting, you know, and I, I think that that could go one of, you know, two or three ways that you're on that left side. Yeah. I started making offensive line combinations and I came up with about 20 different ones that the Vikings could land on. And certainly that is one I want to ask you about. But with Cleveland, what step would he have to take or what would he have to show in training camp to be interesting to them as a starter? Because I, I look at the way that some of the rookie tackles played last year, even guys who were drafted high, and it is an incredibly difficult transition. The best player you've ever played in college is every single week at defensive end. There, there's probably 40 good defensive ends in the NFL, if not more than that, and stepping in and having to do that on a weekly basis is a really impossible task for rookies, but if he was going to prove that to them, what would he have to show? Yeah, I mean, I think in practice, I guess we'll see what kind of practice situation these guys are going to have. But uh, assuming that he's going to get a chance to, to face off against somebody like Daniel Hunter in practice and you know, some of the other defensive ends that they have. I mean, no more Everson Griffin, but um, there's still, you know, some, you know, like Weatherly or excuse me, not him, but um, Adenabar, let's see, like, he, yeah, yeah, him, you know, they have, I know they signed, uh, but they have Eddie Yarbrough, you know, Anthony Zettel, guys like this, or at least played some games in the league. Not that they're, you know, high level starters, but, you know, it's really just how guys look in practice and particularly how he's going to look against somebody like Hunter, you know, in pass protection. And you can evaluate that, you know, as a, as a pro scout with the team. And I'm sure coaches and all that stuff are going to be looking at that very closely to see if he doesn't, you know, if he's able to trust his technique and, and play within himself in, in high stress situations in practice and do it consistently and improve and all, all those kind of things and continue to, you know, just get better. Um, then I think that that will give coaches more confidence when the season starts. If one of those things happen, like we mentioned, you know, putting him in there. Uh, so I really think it just comes down to, to trusting his technique and practice and showing it against the competition he's going to see and not panicking, not, you know, playing outside of himself and trying to do too much and, you know, put testing him, you know, putting, being able to test him and put him in high stress situations, I think is going to be critical, you know, and then, you know, um, just, you know, hopefully he won't have to play unless, you know, something goes wrong. Uh, but at least if he's, if he performs in those situations, then coaches will have confidence to, to, you know, put him in there. But, yeah, well, we'll see. I mean, it, it could be kind of similar to Brian O'Neill where, you know, he may he may just have to play, you know, so we'll, we'll see. Well, I think it could be a tremendous domino effect if somehow he does win that job over Riley Reef, and they can bump Riley Reef into guard. And I have many a time stolen your opinion on this, but I think that Reef as an interior lineman would make a much better transition than Mike Remmers did a couple of years ago, because that's what triggers right in Vikings fans minds. When you say move a guy in from tackle to guard, but reef is a, a, a greater talent. And also when you think about who they're playing in the NFC North, Brandon, the one major weakness they had last year is that the power rushers, the nose tackles, the, uh, the Eddie Goldman's Akeem Hicks players like that, uh, I think Hicks was actually out for the game that they played him in, in Chicago, but Eddie Goldman, uh, they were able to just penetrate uh, easily uh, in the middle of the offensive line. And if Reef is in there pass blocking against some of the bigger beasts that line up over the centers and guards, I think that gives you a much better chance if he was able to do that. And if not, then you really are going to have to hold your breath and hope that Pat Elfline finally gets back to his 2017 form. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really what it's going to come down to. And at least this year on the left side over there, it, it, it sounds like the more we talk about it, hash it out, like they're going to have some options, which is good. A lot of teams don't even have viable options like this. Um, so, I mean, between Reef, Elfline, and, and Cleveland, 
I think, you know, two of the, two of those three guys are going to be in those two positions. And I mean, I, I feel a lot worse with other teams in terms of their top three for those positions than I do for the Vikings. Uh, you know, granted, I don't think it's very good either. Um, you know, necessarily I wouldn't, you know, qualify that those three as one of the, you know, maybe top half or, Definitely not like a top half, maybe, uh, of the three to play those two positions on the left side across the, you know, league wide. But it's it's definitely, you know, in the middle of the pack or near there, um, maybe a little below. And, you know, I, I think the, the right guard spot, which I know we're transitioning to eventually, but that spot obviously is, is the one that is the most concerning, at least to me, Um because I see more viable options on this left side. Is it a good idea for the Vikings to check in with Larry Warford, who still doesn't have a job yet? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think a lot of teams would be smart to check in with Larry Warford. So, yeah, I don't think Minnesota is an exception to that. So, yeah, you would instantly upgrade whoever you have there. All the names I'm looking at on the roster, he'd, he'd be a big upgrade. Well, the big question is whether he can successfully handle the zone scheme and the screen passing game with, you know, the, the offensive line is really built a specific way. If you look at the athletic profiles of everybody from Elfline to Bradbury to O'Neill to Cleveland, um, to have a guy who is not as fleet of foot, would that fit? Uh, I think so, yeah, because he's such a good run blocker and, if you know people would would watch the the Saints offensive line run block over the last few years, uh, they they run outside zone and wide zone, whatever you want to call it. They they do stuff where they ask the offensive lineman to move laterally and block people, you know, combo block people. Um, and Warford's done that at a high level. Now getting out on screens and things like that, you know, maybe you run a little bit more to the left, you know, doing that stuff, or you just design it to where um, maybe do some pin pull with him blocking down and Bradbury pulling around him with uh, a tight end blocking down so O'Neal can get out and maybe Bradbury and O'Neal utilize them more. Um, you know, but Warford, you know, he's had some nice blocks in space over his career, uh, but I wouldn't call that a strength of his, but um, outside zone, I, I would call a strength, you know, for sure. So it's just, you know, you just have to parse it a little bit there, but I, uh, you know, I think that he can succeed in what he does mentally, uh, what he does with his hands in pass protection, uh, his professionalism and just all that type of stuff of what he brings. Um, and doesn't, doesn't make a lot of mistakes. Uh, all that. I mean, there's a lot more, you know, obviously, you know, as I'm saying to people, there's a lot more to offensive line play than, you know, blocking on the screen. Uh, even if the offense utilizes a lot of them, there's, you know, there, there's a lot more than that. And I think Warford is pretty much good at everything. So, well, and um, I, I know that yeah. um, PFF grades aren't always your favorite or you don't always agree with them. Uh, but I would say that Larry Warford had a higher PFF grade than anyone on the Vikings offensive line last year. So, you know, e- even though he might not be the perfect fit, if you are, I think, good at your job as a coach, which the Vikings have many good coaches, you could take someone like that and, like you laid out there, fit them in because they're talented or more talented especially than anybody else you have and make it a, a big bonus because last year the interior of the offensive line was just downright disastrous and they didn't do a ton to improve that. In fact, uh, they moved on from Josh Klein, which maybe didn't stun you, but I was a little surprised that they did that. So now you're looking at the right guard position probably belonging to Drew Samia. What is your feeling on him from when he came out of college and what the challenge might be for him at right guard? Yeah, I like Samia coming out. Um, I, I didn't necessarily peg him as a you know an ideal fit for an outside zone scheme necessarily, but I don't think that he's a total liability there either. Um, you know, Samia is a guy, I think the thing that stood out most at Oklahoma, competitive toughness and power. Um, and those things can be utilized, obviously, for all offensive linemen uh, in any scheme. But I see those things translating well uh, into this scheme because of what he can do in terms of creating displacement of defenders uh, laterally. Um, and he could do that by, you know, creating torque on guys and, you know, getting guys moved out of holes and things like that. Um, and that's 
highly, you know, common and prevalent and everything in outside zone schemes. And it's not pure athleticism all the time. It, it's also, you know, utilizing leverage to your advantage to get defenders moved uh, where they don't want to go and using their momentum against them and things like that. And I think that he has some experience doing things like that. And also, um, I think that he's a pretty good puller as well. Um, and, you know, Minnesota likes to move their, get their offensive linemen moving. Um, and getting them into space and, you know, just allowing them to kind of shine that way. And I think, you know, Samia, he pulled all the time at Oklahoma. So he's, he's definitely, and he had a couple really nice reps when he played, um, for the Vikings. I think it was preseason. Um, he had some really nice plays, uh, in turn, uh, pulling and, you know, moving and things like that. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that he has the skill set to, to come in and, and, you know, be a starter in the NFL. Um, you know, now he needs to, to, to harness that aggressiveness that he plays with because it could cause him to get over aggressive and lunge at guys and be early in pass protection too often with his hands, which can lead to missing, um, and letting guys go right by you. And, uh, that's something that, you know, I, I don't know how far he's come, but, I'd be probably most more concerned with pass protection with him than run blocking. That's for sure. I think he in the run game and, and everything that Minnesota likes to do there. I think that he could fit and and be ready there quicker than pass protection. So that that would be my my main concern there. And it's just a matter of, in my opinion, if, he, if he's got better, you know, using his hands and, and timing the strikes and and uh, gotten better with his pass sets and things like that. So he's in a good relationship to the rusher, you know, on a snap-to-snap basis. All right, before we continue the discussion, I have to tell you about Bet Online. There's no shortage of action going on right now at our exclusive partner, Bet Online. NASCAR is back, and Bet Online has hundreds of other games, events, and sports to get in on. You could still bet on simulated NFL, NBA, UFC events 24-7, or you can participate in a $10,000 Madden Bracket Challenge, a March Madness-style NFL simulation tournament that you can enter for free and live right now on bet online's youtube channel you can find an exclusive interview with ex-chicago bulls ron harper horace grant bill cartwright and craig hodges to discuss the michael jordan documentary on what they are calling the final dance visit betonline.ag and use the promo code blue wire to receive your new welcome bonus and check out all the action bet online your online wagering solution well, you mentioned just, you know, how far he could come along in developing those areas of his game. I think it says a lot, at least so far, unless they do sign a Larry Warford, which I don't anticipate. But if they do, that might say, OK, we think that Samia needs more time. But the fact that they have had a little bit of cap space to work with and not gone out and signed two or three veterans, they've brought back some of the same players, your Dakota Dozier's and Brett Jones, who know the system, but they didn't go out and get a Kelechi Osemele if he could still play or a Larry Warford or, or somebody else who's out there. Uh, Ronald Leary is also a free agent and not getting them says a lot about what they've seen. And then if you look at uh, week 17, he got to play the whole game. Rick Spielman mentioned that really liked what he saw from the young offensive linemen in week 17 and they felt like some of those guys had kind of red shirt years and would be able to step in as starters. so I kind of took a lot of those comments about him and also maybe Ole Udo as well I have a tough time seeing Udo playing but uh, Garrett Bradbury is the biggest question to me though Brandon if Garrett Bradbury takes a big step forward and handles those big guys we mentioned them, your Kenny Clarks and your Eddie Goldmans and so forth Zadarius Smith would line up over him sometimes if he handles those guys better this year the Vikings offense is better like end of sentence he struggled so much in the passing game last year against some of the dominant players that it was really tough for Kirk Cousins, who's not going to avoid that interior pressure. So I asked Garrett Bradbury, I think it was last week on his Zoom call, about you know, taking that next step forward. And he was pointing out that at this time last year, or you know, not too long ago at this time last year, he was pre- preparing for a combine. He was running 40s and practicing his starts, and now it's all pass sets it's all designing his body with his trainers to be able to handle that power and things like that I could foresee with his athleticism his talent to be a first round draft pick him taking a big step forward this year um yeah I mean 
I think that he could take a step forward. I don't know, you know, as long as it's incremental improvements, I think that he'll be on the right track. I mean, you know, at his stature and things like that. And, you know, I mean, I can't see him ever being very good in pass protection against elite level rushers with not, not just any elite rushers, but specific molds that he sees in the NFC North, uh, guys like Kenny Clark. Akeem Hicks. I mean, those kind of guys. And then Jonathan Allen gave him some trouble uh, a little bit last year, I believe, uh, you know, Jerome Payne. I mean, like the big guys with really good length and elite level play strength and power who can like really bull rush guys back. I mean, he can get better there for sure. He has to. Um, but, you know, I, I'm not going to ever see him being like Travis Frederick or anything like that. I mean, he's just not built that way. He's going to have to find other ways to win. Um, and other guys have done it, you know, being undersized like him. You look at guys like Jason Kelsey. Um, I mean, even going back, you know, like Olin Krutz and Kevin Millar and these guys who played under 300 pounds, you know, and they're, and they're centers today who do it as well. Um, a lot of offensive linemen play under 300 pounds. Uh, but, um, he, yeah, he's just going to have to get really good with his hands. Um, and, you know, as far as timing and placement on guys, uh, I think that that's going to be huge. Um, you know, because he's going to get overpowered sometimes by the, the names that we, that I mentioned. I mean, and other names as well. Uh, it's just, you know, I, I don't really think that's ever going to go away. Um, so I would expect that to happen. Uh, but as long as he just, you know, incrementally improves how he uses his hands, um, I saw improvement in, in him last season. I mean, I, I don't know. You know, my opinions are different than I think most on him last season. I mean, you know, I wouldn't call him a good center overall, but I saw improvement. I saw some really good stuff in the running game, um, pretty much from day one and then on through more and more of it. Uh, so n- nothing I saw last year was too surprising with him. Um, I don't know. I mean, when, when you're that small with that short of arms, uh, you got to be outstanding with your technique and I think more than anything it was technique and uh you know physically he's going to get overmatched a lot that's just gonna that's going to be his life right and I think that finding ways to work around some of that that you know is going to happen and play to his strengths that last year I thought they did a really good job with getting him out on screens and things like that using him in the run game as you mentioned that they could do even more of that to highlight his athleticism his quickness uh, and things like that to to maximize his talents before I let you go um, Brandon I wanted to ask you about the other side of the ball and Michael Pierce I don't know a lot about Michael Pierce other than that he is gargantuan and so they go from one of the biggest human beings I've ever met in my life, Linval Joseph, to Michael Pierce. What is the difference between those two? Um, I mean, physically, they're just, they're, they're so much, they're so different looking, uh, you know, height, uh, weight's pretty much the same, but height and length are different. Linval's just so much of a bigger person um, uh, with much better length, and he just wins differently that way. But Pierce you know, the, the similarity is they're both very difficult to move, um, but they, they, they use different skills and physical capabilities to, to, to come up with kind of the similar result, really. Uh, Pierce is, you know, he's six foot tall and he's not the longest arms or anything, but, you know, six foot, 330, 340, um, you know, you're going to be obviously very low to the ground, um, and your center of gravity is going to be tremendous. Uh, he, he's a good athlete um, for his size, and he's just extremely difficult to get your hands on as a blocker uh, just because he's so low to the ground and so freaking strong. Um, and that's really kind of – he's just like a fire hydrant in the middle <laughs> is basically what he is. Um, and he's a lot of fun to watch. There's a lot of nuance to his game that I love. I mean, I've been – watching him very closely for the last three years. Um, 2017, I saw every snap of his. And then last year I did as well. I, I've, you know, I've been talking to him all off season basically about his game and everything and just kind of picking his brain on it. And he's, he's very uh, refined the way he goes about it. And um, he, he knows his opponent very well each week. 
and he knows what they do well, what they don't do well. And, and, uh, he's just an, he's, he's a good, you know, he's a good pro in my opinion, who has been very underrated for, for a while. And it was really cool to see a team like the Vikings, who I have a lot of respect for, for how they kind of run the organization, you know, you know, as far as coaching and scouting to kind of identify him as somebody. Uh, to replace Linval Joseph, I thought was really cool. And I think he's going to do a really good job. I mean, he's, he's not going to offer a lot as a pass rusher. Um, you know, he'll be able to push the pocket a little bit and kind of compress things on a quarterback. Um, if he stands, stands back there too long, um, which will be helpful to outside pass rushers, um, because quarterbacks won't necessarily be able to step up, uh, into a lot of space when he's on the field, but he's not going to be out there. Um, maybe he, you know, I wouldn't put him in, you know, like Linball, like his prime, like 2017 timeframe. He's not going to be even that much of a force against the pass. Uh, so, you know, fans and people may kind of see a little bit of a downgrade in that regard, but I think as a run defender and just everything else he's going to bring, it's going to be a very good signing, you know, and I think that's, you know, I'm sure that's what Minnesota wants out of him, you know, somebody to come in play over a center and take up attention and, and bodies. So guys like Eric Hendricks can roam free and, and attack the ball. Well, it's a, a whole nother episode breaking down why that matters so much to Mike Zimmer's defense. But, you know, one of the things that they do so well uh, with defensive linemen who stuff the run on their own is they don't have to bring up another safety all the time into the box and can play too deep. And that really, really helps them against the pass and the play action and things. So there's a domino effect to having someone as good as Michael Pierce there. Brandon Thorne, you can follow him on Twitter, Brandon, T-H-O-R-N, NFL. And also I see that you have a new episode out of the Trench Warfare podcast with Justin Pugh. So make sure you go find that too. If you like this podcast, you will really like hearing the stories and analysis from some former NFL offensive linemen that you uh, that you really break down. And I should also add, too, that uh, you contribute to the athletic uh, Denver Broncos coverage as well. So um, doing a lot of great stuff, and I'm very happy to see it. Brandon, thanks for coming on, buddy. Thanks, man. It's a pleasure, and anytime. I'm uh, looking forward to the season and talking again. There will be plenty of opportunity, I can promise you, to talk offensive line with the Minnesota Vikings. All right, this is uh, Purple Insider. Thanks for listening. Hey, this is Megan Rapino, and I'm Sue Bird. We've decided to turn our crazy IG live show into a podcast for your listening pleasure. Enjoy the show. A Touch More. New episodes of A Touch More drop Tuesday only on the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts.